0: David, we didn't plan that, but we just sang uh, Ruler of All Nations on a a Sunday where we prayed for uh, the nations of the world. uh, I think that was a a fitting song, so God's providence. Sometimes he does that. We sing things that are appropriate and he brings them to mind in a timing, uh, even though we don't know we plan it. So thanks, David. Well, hi again. I feel like I've been up and down a lot today. (laughs) We're back. Um, Glad you're here today as we wrap up Philippians. As we uh, come to the end of Philippians, I, I hope it's been fun. It's been fun. I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed opening this book together. I hope so. I hope it's been encouraging. I hope uh, it's been a, uh, a blessing to our congregation as we've gone through this uh, small letter. I hope it was at a good pace as we've uh, unpacked this letter together, uh, and it's been a blessing to our church today. I won't embarrass her today, but somebody has a Philippians 4.13 shirt on today. I won't embarrass her, uh, but in God's providence too, she didn't know we were doing that verse today, and we are. maybe you'll find her in the gathering place today and say, nice shirt. Well, after today, we will have walked through every verse of Philippians. Some call this um, expository preaching. Expository preaching. It's something I'm passionate about, really passionate about. But what is it? When I say that term, expository preaching, what is it? Um, I, I like... I like this simple definition by a guy, a pastor named Alistair Begg. He said, expository preaching, it's the unfolding the text of Scripture, unpacking, unfolding, in such a way that makes contact with the listener's world while exalting Christ, and confronting them with the need for action. Expository preaching, it's unfolding the text, unpacking it, so that it comes into contact where we live with what's actually going on in our world, and in our, in our life, and allowing the text, the God's Word, to be the center of what we're doing, of what we're talking about. The Word in expository preaching guides the content of the sermon. And the text is explained and applied to our real lives for real action, he said there, Alistair Begg said. It's expository preaching. And when a preacher, when a, a, a preacher does that, and an expository preacher walks through, at many times, entire books of the Bible, or letters, or, or big sections of Scripture, at least, one of the great things that happens, and hard things is, you can't avoid difficult topics, can you? You can't. You can't avoid difficult topics. Topics like sexuality, homosexuality, marriage, predestination, God's judgment. Uh, the complementing genders, all those things that in our culture today cause our ears to kind of go bing, right? And cause us to kind of listen. A preacher that chooses to do that can't shy away from those topics, can they? Just because they're hard, or are difficult. Expository preaching doesn't let you do that. Well, today, you're like, what are we talking about today, right? <laughs> today we get we get to one of those topics. One that can be hard for pastors to talk about at times, the topic of money, the topic of even giving in the church. That can be hard for pastors, whether it's because they don't want to appear greedy or the other end is be associated with um, kind of a prosperity gospel or preaching. It's a hard topic. But the topic of money is discussed a lot in the Bible. A lot. And there's all kinds of um, errors in the church even. As we think about money, as we, we as we talk about money, here's one extreme. Here's a couple errors. One extreme is this: uh, the super wealthy are the super spiritual. And if you just have enough faith, and if you just believe enough, God blesses those who've got their lives together. And so you look and see, well, if they're wealthy, that means they're they're the spiritual ones in the church. That's one uh, extreme error. Okay. Or there's another one that says this, the poor, those who are most poor tend to be the most spiritual. And therefore there's a solution to kind of um, sell it all and to be spiritual, you just got to get rid of everything and, and let it all go. they are actually two extremes that are really overly simplistic and in, in some ways incorrect actually. There's been wonderful saints and followers of Christ that have been absolutely wealthy. There's the wonderful saints of Christ that have been poor. They're both extremes that have some incorrect views in it there. But at Bethany Church, we go where the text goes, and so we're here today. Paul is going to talk about giving in the church. And receiving gifts in the church. And contentment in our lives and in the church. And one, one, one big secret, a secret. He's going to let you in on today. He's going to let us in on today. Paul's a man who learned the secret which made his life of contentment possible and his candor about gospel giving conceivable. This morning we're going to pack this secret together. We're going to explore three closing remarks today. Three closing remarks to shape our own contentment now and our own giving as we think about money and giving in the church. So hopefully... What am I going to say next? You got your outline? Hopefully you got it there. Grab your outline. Have it open. Hopefully you got a text open as well to the end of Philippians chapter 4 as we wrap up our series, The Center of Joy, with our first closing remark. It's this one. We're going to look at Paul's attitude. It's easy to remember. Of gratitude. You've heard that before, but it's easy to remember. Paul's attitude of gratitude I want us to see as we unpack this passage today. Take a look at verse 10 with me. He begins, I rejoiced. He said that a lot, hasn't he, in this letter? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul begins with this this attitude of rejoicing, this attitude of gratitude. If you remember, this letter, Philippians, it's a missionary support letter. Do you remember that? Uh, Epaphroditus has traveled there with a financial gift uh, to the Philippians, or to Paul from the Philippians to Paul, and now Paul's sending him back with this letter, uh, a missionary support letter, really. And Paul breaks out here in this first verse with this this rejoicing attitude again, this attitude of gratitude. Why? Because he says there, they've revived their concern for me. They've been brought back to life, off life support. They've revived their concern for Paul. He really means this, you're able to give again. He says, I rejoice in that. For whatever reason, we don't know. They were unable to give for a while, and now they're able to again. And Paul's, he's overjoyed. He's grateful. He's, he's over—he's uh, overflowing with this gratitude. But it's interesting. Some commentators have noticed that Paul's passage here is really a model for receiving, too how to get get a gift. How to give we're going to talk about, but how to get a gift as well. He doesn't flat out just come out and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Philippians. He doesn't do that. It's kind of interesting. He says, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord. Verse 14 says, you were kind to me. Verse 16, he's going to say, you sent me help. Paul's really careful in how he receives the gift too, in how he thanks them. He's really careful. Because ultimately to Paul, It's not just or even necessarily about the gift. Again, for Paul, it's about God. It's about God for Paul. It's about God working in and through the Philippians. It's about the Philippians, we're going to see too, bearing much fruit in their life, this giving. So what does he do? What does he do? It's a good model for us as you and I receive gifts in our life too. So let's, let's take a look at it. One commentator said this about it. He said... This is what, how Paul receives. Paul thanks God for them in front of them. Let's say that again. Paul thanks God for them, not so much the gift, for them in front of them in this letter. He avoids uh, these profuse thank yous that might be a little manipulative. Or be like, oh, Paul, is just thank you, thank you, thank you. We get it, we'll give again, Paul. Okay, we get it, right? He's trying to avoid that, coming across like, thank you, send me more money he's really careful he avoids puffing them up with pride when he does that too by greatly rejoicing instead of in them in the work god is doing through them he's even caring for them and shepherding them and how he says thank you so thoughtful it's right it's right to acknowledge a gift given it's right and and to be grateful to be to you lose me? Thankful. To be thankful when a gift is given. It's right to do that. To say thank you. But Paul says there in his words, I rejoice in the Lord greatly is how he begins. So as a community then, as individuals then, let's be offering thanks to God all over the place as Paul does for those who've blessed us with gifts. I thank God for you, Bethany Church. Vance did that today. I thank God for you, Bethany Church. Those of you who continue to serve here, to give here, to love here, even through some valleys. Vance stood up here today and said, thank you, I thank God for you for 33 years. I thank God for you. It's provided my family and I had a place to serve to use the gifts we've been given for my family and I to come and to live and to get to know a community I thank God for you that's what Paul's doing and I mean that too even though I'm just modeling it I mean that too I do and I look forward to many years of all of us practicing thanking God together for each other in front of each other because that's what Paul does here our first closing remark we're looking at paul's attitude of gratitude if that's our first one here's our second one today paul's consistent contentment his consistent contentment let's take a look at it paul is so careful as we said not to manipulate or to abuse the philippians generosity that he spends three they're absolutely just gems absolutely three absolutely brilliant verses talking about his ability his ability to be content content in life it's the opposite of coveting so if coveting you've heard that word in the bible kind of a weird word we're like what does that mean today it means over desiring something that somebody else has this idea of contentment is the opposite of that covet we want content we're we're content right We're content in what we have. I'm convinced that in my own life, and if you're anything like me, which you probably are, this is and can be one of the greatest things that's missing from the lives of many followers of Christ. Contentment. Being content wherever you're at in life. Think about your own life for a minute. And think about mine. I struggle with this. I do if I were to ask you, here's the question. I like to bring questions to us to make us think. If I were to ask you to make a list of what do you what do you need to be content? What do you need now? Need to be content? What would what would show up on your list? What would you write there? What would, what would and I could come up with probably a long list, couldn't you? A long list of things. Or here's to put it another way. Complete this phrase with do it. I gotta have my. What is it? I gotta have mine. And if I'll be honest with you, for me it's something as simple as a cup of coffee. Yeah, right, I heard an amen out there. I gotta have my cup of coffee. If I don't have it, I'm pretty discontent. In fact, I'm like this guy right here. A day without coffee is like just kidding, I have no idea. That's me. I have no idea. Show the hands, who is with me? Coffee, come out of the come out of the dark beans with me. Who's there? Yeah. Alright, we got some people there. Yeah. We're in this together at Bethany Church, struggling with discontent over a cup of coffee. It's kind—it's funny, right? It's funny and it's silly, and that's—it's good for us to laugh together. But it's not that far off from reality. At times, it can be something so simple for me as a cup of coffee, but pretty quickly it becomes pretty serious. How many? Little things, and and big things too, can get out of whack in our life and make us grumble or anxious or discontent with God. I'm like, Robin, we're out of coffee. You know, it's like, right, easy there, guy. You know, we'll get some coffee, right? Little things. I mean, those unbalanced checkbooks, right? The temperature outside the last two weeks, the size of our house, a burnt meal. Unfinished home uh, project, a child's messy room, empty tank of gas when you're running late, right? Those are things. Forgetting your cell phone, right? You'd think we had lost the world. Forgetting our cell phone. That's not even mentioning the big stuff of life, right? It's not even mentioning the big stuff of life. Paul's consistently content, and remember, he's writing from prison for prison. In prison. Lacking money and stuff and things and need and probably coffee. Look at verses 11 through 12 with me. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Remember, he's in jail. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Paul's contentment didn't correspond to his stuff, his material stuff, or even his four walls, obviously, as he, we know he's in prison. I mean, think about it. Don't we have a lot of attachment? I do. To my stuff, right? Right? To my things. And Paul's talking about that here. I got so much attachment to my stuff, my things, my needs, my wants. I got to have, right? I got to have. Stuff is good. Stuff makes life possible. Stuff is from God, but stuff isn't everything. It's not everything. And Paul seems to be clear you can be content without your stuff that's hard you can lose it and still be content or it can break down and you can still be content that's hard when I have a lot I'm content Paul says when I lose it all I'm content Paul says here's the point it's possible to be content regardless of your circumstance what Every situation, Paul, every situation, Paul, being brought low and and high, having lots and little, having plenty and hunger, he said, abundance and need, Paul, all of it. What does it mean? Paul was like this stoic, because that's what the stoics were like in that time. They were philosophers at Paul's time. They were just like, I'm going to be a robot. That's basically kind of what they were. I'm going to be just stoic. You know that word, stoic, kind of stone-faced. I mean Paul was like a robot without feelings? I'm content. Ah, eh, nothing gets at me. I rolls off my back. Nothing bothers me at all. Just an emotionless man. Is that what Paul was? Not at all. Not at all. It doesn't mean that we become, as Christians, some immovable robot without feelings. It doesn't mean that at all. Paul, as we know, was a great feeler, wasn't he? We just, I mean, we said rejoice for probably the 20th time in our in our reading today. He was a great feeler, a deep feeler, deeply emotional probably. How many times have we said, can, we say, can he say in one letter, I'm rejoicing. It's like Paul skipping on rooftops, like who is this guy, you know, he's just overjoyed. A man full of deep love, like Christ. And frankly, it's a level of emotion and expression that even at times scares a lot of us men. Doesn't it? And we see Christ weeping. all. He weeps all the time. But he was bold and strong, wasn't he? And Paul's similar. He's bold and strong and in jail, and yet he is a man that's a deep feeler. And yet Paul had become a man whose circumstances couldn't move him. Couldn't move him. He was firm. He was solid. I mean, wouldn't it be nice? Think about that. It'd be so freeing not to be rattled, so rattled and, and get grumbly and complaining and discontent by an empty cup of coffee, right? It's so nice, so freeing. Here's the good news. You can learn it. You can learn it. And in fact, it is learned. You have to learn it. Paul, did you catch it there? He said twice in this little few verses there, I learned. I learned. I learned how to, I learned this, he said. He says it twice there. So if he can learn it, that means so can you and I. We can learn how to be content. It's learned as we go through seasons of want and the seasons of plenty because Paul had both. And both of them bring different temptations, don't they? Both of them bring different temptations to covet. Seasons of plenty and seasons of want. Both of them bring different temptations to be discontent. Seasons of plenty and seasons of want. Because you begin to realize that life is more, about more than the ebb and flow of my 401k, right? Or my bank account. Or my wardrobe. So much more. So much more. Well, we know temptations. Let's talk about those two extremes. Temptations to be discontent. Come to the rich, even though they have a lot. Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's learned through seasons of plenty how to be content. Your cup can be overflowing with stuff, and it won't make you content. You know who the richest man I think ever in our nation was? Uh, his name was his name was. John D. Rockefeller. You've heard his name, Rockefeller Center. John D. Rockefeller. He was alive in the tw- in the early 1900s. He was a billionaire in the 1900s. That says something, right? A billionaire in the 1900s. By today's standards, uh, he would have four times as much as the richest man alive today. That's Bill Gates. By today's standards, he'd have four times as much as Bill Gates. That's crazy money, isn't it? That's like throwing money everywhere kind of money. Never run out of money, money. That's what that is. When a reporter asked him how much money is enough, you know how he responded? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. His cup of coffee was flooding over. He was flooded. And he was discontent. He was discontent. It's learned through those seasons of plenty because stuff really, you, we all know that. At the end of the day, it can still be with discontent. But it's learned through seasons of poverty too. And Paul had both. As I said up top, there's also this false idea that to be poor instantly means you're equally, or you're more spiritual. And it's just not true. There's just as much opportunity when you are yourself in times of need, isn't there? To stare at somebody else's overflowing cup, to stare at the bottom of your empty, your own empty cup, and covet, be discontent, want what others have when you're poor too, both. But Paul says contentment can be learned through both of those. Or most of us are probably somewhere in the middle of that, or uh, or somewhere on that scale. Probably not the extremes of Rockefeller. I know like that, right? And most of us have a meal tonight. Contentment can be learned. It's a secret, though. It's the secret. You want to know the secret? Do you want to know the secret? I hope so. I hope so, all right? I mean, I hope you want to know the secret. This secret. When you go through the ups and downs of life, realizing that it doesn't really matter what stuff is in our cup you realize when your cup is filled with Christ. That's the secret. We've been talking about it week after week and we come back to it again as Paul does. It's not so secret that the world doesn't know it. It's not so secret that Paul's never said it. But that's the secret. That's the secret Paul learned. You can learn it. Our contentment, Christian, your contentment comes from Christ. That's where it comes from that's why paul can say the things he says and when we our contentment comes from that when our cups full of christ first and foremost it makes you flexible it makes you adaptable when those seasons come and go of want and need and with paul you're able to say in all things i can be content because i realize what i really need to be filled with is christ that's what's going on here for paul he had learned that secret better than maybe anybody else alive at that time, but he learned it. So don't be discouraged. You can grow too. You can learn it too. I can learn it too. There's the secret. Verse 14. Found somebody's. Found somebody's T-shirt today. It says this. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Probably the most tattooed verse in all the Bible. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, C.J. Mahaney got it right. Paul learned the secret because he learned to give attention to the Savior. That's what's going on here. That's what Paul's saying in this verse. It it, it probably is a better translated, I can do these things um, in this context. Be content, give, receive, because there are things that you and I can't do right like if i wanted to go off the trailblazers tomorrow there's not one thing i could do i wouldn't make it would i right so all things is a little misleading but it's for sure in this context to grow content in life and make christ the most valuable thing in your life you can do these things through christ who strengthens us so how are we strengthened i want to be strengthened i know you do too how are we strengthened? i'm going to keep writing this metaphor all the way out how does it happen like those coffee beans? How do you get a rich cup of coffee? They got to soak, don't they? They got to soak. Our hearts, you got to soak them in the gospel. You got to soak them in Jesus Christ. In other words, you got to marinate them. For those of you grillers out there, you got to marinate your heart in the gospel. That's how you learn the secret. You got to soak like those coffee beans to become rich and fresh full we got to soak in jesus that's why i'm gonna never stop talking about jesus and i want us to never stop talking about the gospel here at bethany because when you do you change and you learn as paul says you can learn it too he says so we gaze at him we sing about him but that only can happen if we spend time with him right whether it's one-on-one time corporately here that's the only way it can happen that your cup can be full of christ you got to soak That he becomes so valuable. Paul's words are shocking. So valuable that he can say, I'm content regardless of what happens. Because that stuff can go, but nobody can take him from you. You know that? If you've got him, he's always yours. If your cup is full with him, it's always full with him. He can never take that away. Consistent contentment found in Christ. Well, Paul goes there because I think he's getting us ready to talk about giving, about letting some stuff go, giving financially even here. He shifts back to encouraging them all the more because they have become content in Christ and freed to give, the Philippians have. They've blessed Paul immensely. You see that connection? A content person can give of her stuff, can give of his stuff for the gospel. Because they're content in something much deeper and richer than the thing they're giving. A content person can give. So it's our final closing remark of this letter. As we wrap it up, Paul's guidelines for giving. We're going to look at four of them pretty quickly here. To wrap it up, his, his guidelines for giving. As we look to pattern after Paul the receiver, we're going to look now at the Philippians as givers. As Paul says, four things about giving here. Um, a side note, we talk about giving here, Giving is for those in a church context that, I, I truly believe that once they say, this is my church home. So if you're a guest today, if you're visiting today, in a peripheral way, these things apply to you, but they really start to begin to apply once you say, this is my church, this is my home, these are my people, okay? Just a little side note. How often do you and I or at church do we kind of just give and not think much about it? The bag comes by, and we kind of have that line of thought. Another Sunday, I guess they will give. We're supposed to give, so another Sunday I'll give. And we put our offering in, and and we kind of the bag goes. We don't really think about it again. Paul gives it a purpose here, a, a, a overwhelming, wonderful purpose. We're going to lay out a quick theology for giving. That's what he does at the end of this letter. A quick theology for giving to close. A, a theology that shows us that giving is actually beautiful beautiful and it's wonderful and it's joyful and it's a privilege and it's a responsibility so let's look first first guideline for giving is this it's a partnership it's a partnership when you financially give as the philippians did to paul when you give to support your local church you enter into a partnership look at verses 14 and 15 with me yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, there it is, and receiving, except you only. Paul lays out this inseparable relationship or connection between giving and partnering in the work of the gospel that he's doing. When you give, and I'm tr- we try to make that, I'm trying to make that, want to make that clear, Bethany. When you give, it's not just some disconnected exercise. You are furthering gospel work at Bethany Church, and as we see with Vance today, abroad even. Think about that, abroad even. Your giving does that. You partner in the work. You become a partner with Bethany Church when you give in our mission, helping people follow Jesus. Paul says that the Philippians. They were early givers. They got in pretty quick with Paul. They were early givers, even though they didn't have much in their cup. We hear in, I think, 1 Corinthians it is. They didn't have much. And Paul calls it a partnership, a connection. They had entered into the mission with him through giving. And when you give, when I give, when we do that to the local church, we enter into its mission by investing in it and the work it's doing. But, there's always another side, when we call a church our home church and don't give them, the opposite would be, we don't enter into that partnership, do we? And we tend to function then more, rather than partners, more like consumers or a customer rather than, as Paul says, you get to be a partner. I'll let Francis Chan say it, not me. How common is this in local congregations? All congregations. This isn't a, a zeroing out or a zeroing in on Bethany today. This is a church issue. This is a church issue. How common is it in local congregations to receive benefits, but receiving benefits, but giving nothing in return? When a person's receiving sound instruction, which leads to life and godliness, and when a person's receiving pastoral care, they have the privilege and the responsibility of giving to support the mission of that church. That's a partnership. That's a, 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 an investing, not just a consuming. But I'm part of this too. I want to be part of it and partner. That goes for my family too, as we're being fed here at Bethany Church. So don't be a consumer. Be a partner with us. Partner with us. Partner with us, if you haven't yet. And if you have, thank I thank God for you. Thank God for you, if you have. It's an exciting gospel adventure. He's ahead of us still. A partner in it. A partner in it. Well, his first guideline is partnership. Here's his second one, fruitfulness. When we give it, it's, it's fruitful. There's something that happens here. Look at verse 17. We just got a couple more, and we're wrapping up this letter. Not that I seek the gift, Paul said, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. fruitful. When I was in my early 20s, and I was starting ministry and began to receive some financial support to be in ministry, I remember um, I went to my senior pastor and I asked him, a bit naively but sincerely, do we give as pastors too? Do we do that? I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know I'd become a pastor and the money was coming from people that gave in the church. I said, so do do we, do we tithe too? And I was, I was naive, obviously, but I was sincere. I really did want to know. And what did he say back to me? He said, yes, we do. We give back too. Now, why did he say that to me? He knew my pastoral intern salary wasn't going to bring us into the black, right? He knew that. It wasn't that. He had no he had no concern necessarily about that with me. But he knew, he knew the fruit. He knew the blessing, the fruitfulness it come to a life of somebody that does get back. That's why he told me that. That's why he said that to me. He knew the fruit that would come. And that's what Paul's saying here. The blessing that comes from giving. And and my pastor, my boss at that time, he did not want me to miss out on that fruit. And that's why Paul's encouraging here. That's Paul's motive here. He says, he, he says enter into par- partnership because he's got this eternal perspective of giving in the present. He says, fruitfulness increases to your credit, he says. He's saying that. He said, fruitfulness, it'll increase to your credit. He's saying, when you give in the here and now, you're building up eternal reward. You're building up eternal reward, he's saying. And just to be careful, Jesus taught this too. He said this in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself Treasures in heaven. There's the fruit. Treasures in heaven. Where neither moss nor moth, excuse me, nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a real sense where God blesses, sees, rewards someday the cheerful, sacrificial giving of his people in the here and now. And that is hopeful. That's a promise. That's a reward that's okay to pursue. It's okay to pursue that. That eternal reward. Because when it comes from a joyful heart, when it comes from a heart that's content in Christ, it becomes our third guiding principle. An act of worship. So The fruitless becomes an act of worship. Look at verse 18. I said, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied Having received from Epaphroditus, here they are, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's a weird question to ask after reading that verse, but what's your favorite smell? What's your favorite smell? You've probably got a couple, one or two. Your favorite thing to smell, to scent. Scents bring back memories, don't they? You ever had that happen? You smell it. Oh, I feel like I'm back there in that time, just from that smell. That's totally relevant to what we're talking about. But what's your favorite smell you think about? Do you know God loves certain types of smell? That's weird. God loves certain scents. In the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was made from a trusting, faithful, obedient heart, and they would burn the, the sacrifice on the altar. Look what the Bible says. This was the first time it was said when Noah did this sacrifice. And when the Lord smelled... Ah, the pleasing aroma of the burning animal, the sacrifice. The Lord said in his heart, it was pleasing. The Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Obedient, giving to the Lord. He loves the smell. It, it pleases him, as he said There. A pleasing aroma. That's, a, that's what Paul's alluding to here in this passage. Probably these very verses. He loves that scent, that smell. that ple- It pleases him. Now, not in the sense that it earns us any more favor with him. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You know that. We know that. Not our sacrifice, but Christ. But because of Christ's sacrifice, because Christ gave so much, an obedient heart that's overflowing with a joy and a love to enter into a partnership that gives back to God. He loves that. And it pleases him. It smells good to him. It smells good. He loves it. He knows what you've given. I never will. Just, I won't. I don't want to. But he does. He knows what you've given. And it's an act of worship. It smells good to him. But it's hard. So Paul ends with trust. Our final our final uh, guideline for giving today. It is an act of trust, isn't it? It's hard to enter into. It's an act of trust. Verse 19, that's why he says this. And my God, he will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. It is an act of trust. If we're honest... Nothing like the topic of money brings more fear to us, does it? Or causes quarrels between spouses, right? You know that. I know that. We know that. It causes anxiety. It causes stress. It causes sleepless nights. All of those things, but think about it for a minute. The one who created the world from nothing. The one who holds it all in his hands. The one who gave up his son for us The one who's sovereign, not over every atom in the world, but over every penny too. Sovereign over it. The one who lived poor so we could be spiritually rich. That's the one we're trusting. That's the one we're entrusting our giving with. That's the one we're entrusting our finances with as we give. So trust him as as you give. Paul says, will he not supply everything you need to make it through this life? It's not a promise necessarily of riches that you're going to be Rockefeller. It's not that. But it's a promise of provision. He will provide. And he's provided eternal life. So trust him in the here and now as we give. Trust him as you give that Christ is enough. And Paul, he knows that. And I, I pray that we do too. And what does, it, what does he do? He breaks in, as he always does, to this overflowing... Praise to God at His provision. Look how he closes the letter. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. gave his son will he not make sure that you and I have what full cup of coffee right full life we will overflow in fact let's pray Lord we come to you today as the great giver you you gave up everything Jesus Christ as you came to earth in a body to live to die for us you blessed us immensely in Jesus Christ, in the Gospel. But Lord, we need to learn. We have a long way to go. I have a long way to go. To grow in that contentment that the Apostle Paul talked about. So I pray that for everybody in this room today, each and every one of us, that we would hunger with a desire to learn that. To learn and see that in everything, in in plenty, in need, in high times, in low times, Christ can be enough. Christ can be enough. And Lord, as we think about the future here at Bethany, we think about the mission we're partnering on, a gospel mission. Turn us into those. Make us more so. Many here are those joyful givers. But grow us even more as we partner together for the work here. To bring fruit to our lives and to this world in acts of worship, may we trust you as we give because you have freely given. In Christ's name we pray.